From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, welcome business fans, welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, some combination of three of us and our co-host, Cade Massey are here every, well, we record on Tuesdays here on the Zoom edition of Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM uh, 132 and replayed many times throughout the week. Uh, we've been doing this for the last 18 to 20, uh, 19 months now, I guess, through the Zoom edition, but we hope to be back live soon. Um, we love talking about all problems having to do with statistics and sports. And of course, in the first quarter of our show, at least for the last 18 or 19 months, we've been talking about COVID. And of course, today will be no exception. The next two quarters of our show, if you'd like, will be open mic where we'll talk about what caught our eye in sports. And then in the fourth quarter of today's show, we have a very interesting guest, Ryan Harrison, who does a lot of work in vision research. So how can you improve vision to actually improve performance? So Shane, Adi, how are you guys doing today? Well, I'm so doing how's pretty it going good. You? Been, Yanks took a few from, uh, from the Marlins, from the the Rays, but you know. <laughs> yeah, you want to, we want them all. We want them all. But uh, before we get into uh, baseball, let's uh, talk about about COVID, which obviously, you know, it, it's um, things have been in the ebb and flow over the last 18, 19 months. I mean, if you would ask people three months ago, or, you know, when the vaccine rate was like, whatever, two, three million a day, things were looking extraordinarily optimistic. And maybe that things would be, um, you know, down to a extraordinarily manageable level sooner than later. Now, of course, we have the Delta variant, which has maybe changed the game on some dimensions and not on others. But, you know, I don't want to lead you. Let's, uh, Adi, we'll start with, as we have for the last yeah. 18 months, we'll start with you. What's caught your eye in COVID? Okay, well, obviously, there's lots of cases, um, and cases are going up nationally. They started earlier in some of the southern states, but they're now starting to pick up in the West and here now in the Northeast. I'm hearing cases everywhere, not just Garrett Cole. Uh, who's down with uh, with COVID uh, for the Yankees that's, in the That's impressive. Oh, here on Wharton Moneyball, it only took Adi Weiner three minutes to relate, or 30 seconds to relate COVID to the Yankees. But let's go back. Did he, catch it from, did he catch it from the sticky stuff, or did he catch it from somebody else? <laughs> well, anyway, but the my general sense here, now that it's coming here to the Northeast, and is that there's a that there's a, a slightly more relaxed attitude, particularly from obviously from vaccinated people and from younger people and a, a great deal more concern about the older people. So well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Let's let's break down your, your your opening statement, if you'd like. Do in your mind, based on the data, because we're a data show, we're an analytics show based sure. on the data you've seen, should vaccinated people be are they justified in their semi laissez faire attitude towards the Delta variant? Uh, OK, so I'll, I'll qualify that vaccinated people under 60 without any extreme complications, and I mean extreme complications, not just the extra pounds that some of us may carry, I mean me, um, but uh, really have no, no concern whatsoever. They're in, in countries that keep track, um, Israel and, and uh, UK have seen, have seen Delta variant for many weeks now, uh, UK for two months, Israel for about six, six weeks. They see almost no, I mean, I think literally there was one serious case under 60 among a vaccinated person. So I think it is justified. Um, I mean, no, no justified. concerns. Just to be clear, you mean no concerns for themselves? Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, so, um, I mean, yeah. 
as, as opposed to potentially being spreaders or carriers uh, well, to know, other so, people that are have but, more concerning ages. But that's the kind of thing that, that gets very complicated because we don't even know that the paths of these transmissions that well. There was a, a David Leonhardt, who's been on our show, had, a, had on the New York Times today a series of sort of mysteries, unsolved mm-hmm. mysteries. And the, 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 in, there are incredible, confusing things that just make trying to make inferences very complicated. It seems that vaccinated people do get uh, become positive at a much lower rate than, they, than others who are not vaccinated but definitely have a, what we call breakthrough, breakthrough infection, seem to be, some say 80% uh, in protective, some say as little as 45 or 50% protective. You're against, against means, just actually testing positive. The testing positive, absolutely, just play, plain old testing positive. There's, what we don't know is how much they transmit. And, and so the issue is, uh, do they transmit to substantive degree, to not, not such a substantive degree? But I'm going to stand, you know, we can all, we all can talk about our, our personal experiences, but, you know, uh, we're celebrating my, my, uh, my son's uh, engagement. On Sunday, we're having an engagement party, and many people are calling, is it outside? Um, the people who are calling are, are wondering whether or not they are, uh, are basically by age, right? So um, the people who there are grandparents, uh, great aunts, uh, some elderly relatives, are, they don't want to, they don't want to be indoors for a very long time. And we agree. Um, and actually, we have it, uh, both combinations, which turned out to be quite lucky that we have that um, because we planned this before <laughs> everything's kind of went went crazy. So in answer to your question, Shane, I guess the answer is I don't really know. Well, right. So about- uh, and I get I get well, because your starting statement was that you kind of said that this does support being somewhat laissez faire. And I would guess the uncertainty around. I mean, I, I personally, I will acknowledge it have been pretty laissez-faire in my own behavior. But I mean, the uncertainty about whether or not I as a vaccinated person can still essentially carry it and transmit it um, to others would be one reason that I shouldn't be so laissez-faire. I just, as you sort of, as you sort of said, I think there's just so much uncertainty about whether that really is a substantial, you know, probability or not. Let me ask, let me ask a question, Adi. So um, in the last, since we taped last week, a week ago, um, there was the story out of Provincetown where they had an outbreak and a lot of the people were vaccinated. And that, you know, I think what surprised most people was both the proportion of people in this cluster. I think it was originally 430, then went up to about 800. The proportion of those people that were vaccinated that tested positive. But even the more surprising part was the degree of viral load in those people that had been vaccinated. So did that change your view of what we know and don't know? Because that was right after that, that Dr. Walensky and the CDC, maybe not intentionally or it wasn't their choice, came out with this statement. Did that change anything to you? I understand it's just one study in one small outbreak, but the fact that the positivity rate was so high for vaccinated people and that their viral loads were as high as the people that were unvaccinated? Well, I guess it, in some level, it confirmed what they were seeing in Israel already, which was contrasted with what they were calculated in both Canada and UK, which showed more efficacy. But as usual, it is one, it is many people, but it's really one data point. This was a province town. I don't know what to call it, um, but it was a party. Um, and it was a large, large, large number of people, very close quarters. Um, and I would assume almost the vast majority were vaccinated. So even though 80% of the people who were who to test positive were um, 
were vaccinated, so-called breakthrough. Uh, I would guess that probably 90 to 95 percent of the people there were vaccinated, which gives that same, you know, 75, 80 percent efficacy rate when you do the Bayes rule, uh, which is the right way to adjust for this imbalance. And just to, just so our listeners know what Adi's talking about, yeah. if I had told um, you, the listener, that half the people were of each type, but 80% of the people that test positive were the vaccinated, like, oh my God, oh my God, what? That's terrible. You mean vaccines cause you to get COVID more so than otherwise? But Adi's trying to give you an idea of the base rate. So your prior is this base rate of, let's say, 90, 10, or maybe even more. And so the fact that you observe a significantly smaller fraction of that among the positives, that's why you have to know the base rate and you have to apply Bayes' rule, which is how to go from the prior odds to the, now you observe the data, to the posterior odds. That's why you have to know what this underlying base rate is. And, and, yeah, and just again, be, be, be kind of clarify too, when you're talking about efficacy in this 70 or 80% range, you're specifically talking about the efficacy of the vaccine to prevent us from having viral load such that we can pass right. it to other people, as opposed to the efficacy of keeping our ourselves safe, which again, like, you know, I, I think the, the, the rates of like kind of hospitalizations among it's vaccines, zero, it's more yeah. like 90, well, 97% of, of, of hospitalizations are, and, and let me are just add, let me just, non-vaccinated. And let me just add one thing again, Adi, before you continue, just to remind our listeners, Adi is not saying, when he's saying the vaccine's, let's say 70% effective, he's not saying you have a 30% chance of getting it. He's referring to the relative odds of vaccinated versus non-vaccinated is what he's saying. And so again, people are like, well, how does that work? I thought you said 70, 80% got it and 90% was that. Yeah, but that, it's the reduction of, yeah, but of the 10% of the people that were unvaccinated, maybe 40% of them got it. So you have to look at the relative odds of vaccinated versus unvaccinated, just to clarify again for our audience what it means to say it's 70% effective. And uh, as one final clarification or one final point, the fact that us three statisticians have to spend the last 10 minutes clarifying exactly what we means means that I basically implies that's why it's so confusing and complicated to try and communicate this to the public, because the definitions and the denominators we use in all these calculations are it's nuanced, it's subtle, and it's not something that I think disseminates easily to the public. But let me just remind our listeners here, Adi, this was just your opening statement about who under yeah. 60. We're just breaking down part one of your opening statement. Yeah, I'm not even sure we've allowed you to get through it yet, right? No, no. I, know, I, I will say, you know, there are obviously there are complicated issues. Um, obviously, we don't, under, we don't understand things that well. I think we understand much better the effect of getting the virus, uh, uh, depending on your vaccine type, your age or your comorbidities. We don't know the transmission. And, and just to point to some of the Leonard um, kind of mysteries. One of the great, two great mysteries was the uh, India, which seemed to be almost essentially avoided any bad complication with no vaccine, with no distancing, with no nothing for almost the entire 17 months. Then all of a sudden Delta hit like a ton of bricks. I mean, and it just, it killed and it was a, it was a really, really, really bad scene. Um, We don't really know the full extent of it because of the medical system in India is so, so inconsistent. Um, But it also ran out almost as fast as it ran in. Almost well, mind-bogglingly, it, it, it yes, looks like I a wanted... sharp tooth if you look at the if you look at the graph. And uh, just to make another point, it looks yeah. the same in England, despite its vaccinations, despite it had very few, uh, relatively speaking, far few fewer hospitalizations and deaths. But it also ran in and ran out extremely quickly, which leads to the next question: Will we see the same thing here? 
Yeah. So just to list, just for our listeners here, I knew this was something that Adi would bring up. And, you know, some people have predicted that the Delta variant in the United States will burn itself out by maybe mid-September. In some sense, why does there burn out? Well, let, you know, let's assume for the moment, maybe this is not true. Let's assume you can only get the Delta variant once. Okay. Well, eventually you will run out of uninfected people. And so if this thing spikes up quickly, by definition, You'll run out of people to continue to infect. So fast up tends to be fast down. And one of the things that I've heard, again, is this: the Delta variant. I didn't say COVID. I said the Delta variant could be pretty much done with, Adi, by middle of September. I'm sure you heard the same comment. What, what's your thought about whether that's has well you know know, i'm a bit of a bayesian on these issues i've seen two countries go run in and run out that would be india and and the uk i guess i could use a third for a little bit more uh um confidence um but i also i think i think it'll i don't think it'll run up as quickly here because vaccinations rates are pretty high but they were pretty high in, in in england as well and it and it ran up pretty rapidly and and equally ran out so i would give at least a a 50 percent odds um, on that happening, running, we're being out by mid, mid-September? Well, I mean, so I, I feel like the one thing that could maybe affect this is the extent to which there's, there's kind of spatial variation. I know I, I belabor this every, every show, but whatever. The spatial variation in America. So, I mean, America is a very yeah. big nation, much bigger than the UK is, both, both area and population-wise. And so it could, that could kind of extend it. If So, I mean, I, I guess... The question I would ask is like, you know, does UK have similar at least spatial variation in its vaccination rates compared to America? And does it kind of have is, is it a more or less kind of connected sort of like between region kind of place compared to America? Those would be the two kind of th- questions I would ask in terms of whether or not, you know, we could extrapolate India. I, I mean, India is in, even India, harder to connect to funny. America because clearly their vaccination rates are nowhere near what America's are, uh, but still it ran through them. Yeah. So, Shane, but what you're talking what you're talking about, just to be clear for our listeners, is if we were all, you know, I don't know if they call them network topologists, but if we were all network scientists, we would kind of, you know, have some idea about the connectivity of the United States network. And then we could get some ideas. So, Shane, your point is the, the Delta variant could be burned out in 90. I'm making the number up, of course, 93 percent of the counties, but not in 7 percent of them. Yeah. And so we could. As a matter of fact, the rates could last for a very long time in a certain set of areas. And that's the kind of you know, it is a network structure problem, if you'd like. And that's something that uh, I'm not sure is as well understood. Sorry, Adi, you were going to continue on. Well, no, I was just going to point out that, you know, India is really not single country. You have to look at all the problems. There is there is non-overlapping as the states, um, and you saw the same kind of spiky behavior. They actually were sort of staggered. So if you look at the the country as a whole, it looks much smoother and and flatter. Um, some of the places see, see uh, went away rather quickly. Delhi, almost surprisingly, it just came in and rocked out almost as fast. But they have done antibody tests in in, in India, and again, uh, as a, as we as statisticians. How are they doing a random sample of, of, of residents of this giant country of India, so heterogeneous, heterogeneous and so spread out? Um, but apparently they've done some sampling uh, between you and me. I don't believe it, that it's a random sample, but they're claiming 90 percent uh, antibody rate in a country that is, doesn't have vaccination rates nearly that high. The UK has excess of 90 percent antibodies. Um, and they, they, of course, have many, many vaccinated, but the remainder also have probably contracted Delta by now, if not uh, yeah. Alpha, Beta or, 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 or Gamma. <laughs> 
And uh, the other thing we, I think we always bring up in addition to the spatial variation, which is a huge part of the story, is the age variation, obviously. And so, the, I mean, India, I, I think one of the reasons, I mean, I still believe that one of the main reasons that India and Africa at least were not hit as, as, as much early on in, in the kind of COVID story was the age demographics there. Obviously, they're much younger nations and therefore just had like a at least proportionally smaller pool of, of, of vulnerable people. Um, that doesn't explain why it eventually did hit India. I mean, under that kind of logic, you wouldn't expect it to perhaps ever hit, you know, these countries as hard. Um, but that is something that I guess the UK and the US at least are very similar demographically, I think, in terms of at least of their age distribution. So so they should be, you know, we should be able to learn a lot from the UK on that. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with uh, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner and Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball uh, recording our show, and we're talking like we have for the last 18 or 19 months about COVID in the first quarter. So Adi, what other, uh, in Leonard's article in the New York Times, what other COVID mysteries were there? I think you listed one COVID mystery. What other ones were there that caught your eye? He talked about, and I've been, we've all been thinking about that, and eventually, you know, maybe we'll eventually know the answer. But there's incredible, there is, there's a, so much homogeneity across our countries, our states, and the, yet there's enormous differences in masking rates, um, various, various governmental and population level adaptations to the virus are different, and yet we seem to see, and this was Leonard's point, and we've been talking about this, more or less the same infection rates, the same ins and outs, you know, modulo here and there. But, you know, we made all these predictions about, uh, I think it was in April, where it was Michigan, it was viruses going crazy, and it didn't spread. And how come? We don't know. He also talked a lot about what is the benefit at this point of trying to keep kids out of school and to keep them masked. They've undergone 19 months of loss of education, extraordinary. We know, we've known from the beginning that, that, that in the, personally, as children, it has a very, very low chance. I mean, so low that it, is that, that is, is that data now, um, is that data replicated for the Delta variant? Uh, you know, yeah, yes, for the Delta variant, although there's, there's constant worry that a new variant will come along, which will potentially uh, affect kids. But Delta, we haven't seen this in Delta. In the very beginning, we'll roll us back to March and April, there was concern of these various sort of uh, multiple, multiple sort of inflammatory syndromes, various sort of rare, out, when you get a virus, they used to, they, they're quite rare, but if enough kids have it, you'll see hundreds of cases of these things. There's general sense that this was, this was not a sufficient concern. Um, they don't, they're not, you know, they might feel bad for a while, but they, it's only really quite rare that they cause very serious complications. And the level of the of what we're used to in, in a society in a country this large, and I think one of the real issues is is there benefit to sending keeping them home to masking them? Yeah, and, and I mean, I, th- and, I think. And, I, and I, I do think the data is, I mean, most of the studies I've seen have kind of ruled out this kind of idea of, of there being kind of these like sort of relatively hidden, like kind of extreme kind of medical issues for children themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it comes back to my, my my previous point about my own kind of like me making myself feel bad about laissez-faire is, you know, I, I, has is there solid enough data that the 
that kids, young kids do not kind of, again, retain a viral load enough such that they can spread it to others, even though they themselves are not going to be healthy. Well, let's even talk about that's the the remaining question, basically. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about another uncertainty, you know, which is we don't know about the long term effects. So, I mean, I did. I understand. Should Leonard talk about that at all? So let's imagine I'm the parent of a 10 year old kid. And so she or he gets covid doesn't have serious effects. Maybe, as Shane says, maybe they spread, maybe they don't. But how do we know in two years, three years, eight years, 15 years, something won't pop up as a result of this? We can't possibly know that at this point, right? Okay, well, well, of course, but we're all, I mean, we as parents in society, there's going to be gambles, right? So I'm going to ask you as a parent, you have a child still in school. Uh, I mean, still in, in, in uh, n- not in college or, or, or older, Um what do you have? You have to trade off 19 months running on 22 years of masking, no school, all kinds of consequences, which, by the way, is is quite heterogeneous across this country. What the effects of that are with some potential three year down the line, long term. Uh, if I were still had a parent if kids in school, I'd be going that I would be taking I'd be rolling the dice on getting them back in because I know the consequence of the, the social consequence of keeping them out of school and keeping them masked for this long. And and I don't know on the other side, but uh, I guess as a prior, I'm just going to assume it's it's probably rare. <laughs> yeah, well, I can just say, you know, uh, we had our 15 year old son uh, vaccinated literally when I say the first day that they announced they were moving it down to 12 to 16. When I say he was there the first day, he was almost there the first hour of the first day. Uh, matter of fact, he got vaccinated when the FDA had approved it and the CDC hadn't even approved it yet. Apparently, the CDC doesn't have to. The FDA is good enough. Um, but I will I will say the following. I think I'm not convinced like um, here's what I do think is going to happen, um, not just for him, but potentially for us as professors at the University of Pennsylvania. I think we're going to be wearing masks and I think the students are going to be wearing masks once teaching starts in the fall. And it's only, as you know, for those of you that teach in the first quarter, I think it's what, three weeks away, three and a half weeks away. Um, I think everyone is going to be mandated to wearing masks indoors in the classroom. I do. That, that's my I wouldn't belief. be surprised by that. I, I just want to kind of just to kind of circle back before we uh, leave it, maybe just talk about masks to like the fact that, of course, we don't have any data yet on the long term consequences of COVID because it is a relatively new virus. We've only had it for, you know, a year, year and a half or so. But at least I, I feel like we could at least look at you know, whether there were long-term consequences to people that were infected with some of the viruses that are most like, you know, most like COVID. So SARS, MERS, all these kind of early stuff. And so, I mean, I, I haven't done this research myself, but there must be people that have investigated whether or not those, you know, the most similar viruses to COVID, whether there were any kind of long-term health consequences beyond the kind of ones that you would just sort of expect from having an infection, you know, a viral infection. So I don't know if, you know, that'd be something that at least people could, if they were kind of concerned about that, maybe look into. Let me ask you a question. Um, Adi mentioned the, or you guys both mentioned the variation in what people are doing around the country. I don't know if you saw today, but you could argue from, let's forget whether it's the, whatever the right thing to do is, whether you would have done it. Um, It maybe you could argue this is a great natural experiment about to exist. I don't know if you saw today, but New York City just announced they're going to require a vaccine passport for restaurants, all restaurants, gyms, and large venues. You must prove you are vaccinated to enter. Mm-hmm. Now, this, forget you, whether you agree with the policy or not. We could, you could talk about that if you want to. 
I'm interested as a scientist in your perspective on this as an opportunity to look at the effectiveness of this policy in mitigating the spread of the virus. Because other big cities are not going to do this. We've now got variation. Some restaurants might be, they're going to phase it in. I don't think it's going to be like all at day one. So there'll be some variation. We like variation. I'm just wondering, is this any possibility of learning what, something more definitive? Or is this like there's still too many other confounding factors? Yeah, what, 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 what's, what's the control group for New York City? Yeah. Yeah, and there isn't well, any some other large city. city. Some, uh, I'll, some I'll other. The it's the largest city Eric, in America. Eric, it's a unique Eric, place. It's also the place that was hit hardest first, and they probably have the most amount of natural immunity can, uh, mixed in with a huge amount of vaccination. What's going to happen? In, so, if you have, like, say, good results in, in New York that are say better than say Los Angeles, um, it would be very hard to know that that came from this policy. And and you could just, I mean, a lot of these policies, especially because that policy rest. It has to rest on common sense, right? I mean, you can't always expect to know the answer when you aren't doing an experiment. In fact, we would argue you never know the answer if you don't do an experiment. Um, and I think that it's a good policy, um, although a, con- a, 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 a converse would be um, at what point does someone who's not vaccinated, who is, you know, at, who's in, in an age to qualify and is, uh, what point do they, they get to take their own chances? I mean, if, I don't understand why a restaurant would, what is a restaurant care whether there's a couple of people not vaccinated. Um, I mean, unless that would get people from not going. I mean, I'm not, I have to say, we, ha- we had a lot of people in and out of our house because we've been moving out of our New Jersey house. And uh, we were asking people if they were, if they're, we actually were asking people um, just to wear masks when they're in the house. We don't know who they are, just come in. But uh, we did ask people whether they were vaccinated. And surprisingly, the people doing all the work in our house were majority not vaxxed. And, and I don't, know why um, and what's going to be the, the implications of having a, such a wide um, policy like this, um, except likely to get those people to vaccinate. So I think that would be the, the most likely outcome of a, of a policy so like that's this. What I, it was to kind of coax people to vaccinate. That's what, yeah, I, was, no, I, mean, that's what I was going to ask yeah. you, which is, um, well, let me ask you, it's related. And then Shane, would great to hear you jump in. What is the set of outcomes that you would look at to say that this policy is successful? And by the way, I didn't ask you this question because I expected you to say, oh, my God, this is a great experiment. I expected you to say, oh, there's going to be all these confounding factors. And maybe the goal is to get people to say, if you want to go to restaurants, gyms and large venues, you know how to go. Get vaccinated and you can go, too. It's not about, you know, setting up some all of a sudden we're going to learn exactly how effective things are. Yeah. And I mean, we've all, we've all no, I mean, we've already established that there really is no good other city or whatever. There's no good control group for New York City, I think. But I mean, the one thing, the one kind of comparison that you could do is New York City before this thing happened, before this passport came in versus New York City after. That way, at least it's balanced in terms of the the, the city involved. Um, I still think it's a hard comparison or a hard experiment to kind of like really buy into because I assume that, you know, New York, this is not going to be the only intervention that New York does at that particular moment in time. I mean, as we discussed before, it is being accompanied by changes again in the mask mandate, all this type of stuff. And I mean, you know, I understand that like governments at whatever level 
try like when they have a, pro- a crisis or a problem, they try and basically implement about 10 different things at once that they hope will partially work towards the issue. But of course, that makes it harder to isolate the effect of any one of them, as we've kind of talked about on the show itself. The green, the passport thing is very intriguing to me because I, I can speak from personal experience. A couple of weeks ago, I went to New York City and I went to a mostly outdoor kind of nighttime event. Um, but there was 10,000 people at this thing. And there was no check ahead of time. There was no basic check ahead of time about who was vaccinated, who wasn't vaccinated, et cetera. So, I mean, New York, certainly, I mean, if they do institute this passport and enforcement is reform, which who knows how that's that's going to be a big challenge. But but if they actually were to enforce this passport thing, it it would probably represent at least a pretty big change in, say, like, you know, like a lot of kind of and those large events, at least that you're talking about. And so, so that, me, that would be something isolatable, I think. They could at least look at what, whether the effect on large events actually like was, you know, like whether there was any kind of substantial outcome from that. So I just want just because we are obviously primarily a statistics show, but we're, we like to talk about well COVID. We talk about sports. I just want to understand one last time for our statistics based listeners. What is your major concern about let's. Let me just lay out an analysis and then you guys shoot holes in it. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a before after design. I'm going to look at New York city before this policy, New York city after I'm also going to do it for the top 250 cities in the United States. Okay. I'm going to look at before versus after just to see if there are any general trends that I want to pick up, but I'm also going to control for the pre-COVID rates in those cities, maybe the number of hospitals in those cities, maybe the, you know, whatever set of measures I can get, I'm going to try to co-vary out those effects to try any pre-differences to isolate the effect of this policy. This is what, as you know, uh, Adi, despite, you know, everybody would love to get causal inferences or even directional inferences out of messy data. What would be wrong with that analysis? Because I'm sure many of our listeners are saying, isn't this what policy analysts do all the time is that they control yeah. for a bunch of factors? So what's wrong with that analysis? Well, the intervention is being applied to a particular unit, New York City, that is extreme, is an extreme outlier on several of the kind of things that you would try and control for. For example, as Audie mentioned, it was the one slammed the most. I mean, basically, you, you, you're going to try and control for pre-existing kind of COVID sort of spread or, or, or rates. And there's no city in the U.S. You know, it, any, anything you would apply, any kind of inference you apply in New York would be extrapolation. It would be at the most extreme point in the data for that. Also, in terms of population size, population density, et cetera, there's a whole bunch of these things that you'd be trying to control for. And I mean, you, it's well-intentioned to try and control for them, but where, you know, the particular unit that got the, that's getting this green passport intervention is one of the most extreme out there. Okay. So that's, that's so me, a big me, concern. Also, yeah, Adi, please. Also, yeah. Just to basically piggyback and emphasize what Shane is saying, if we got replicates in other cities that were also instituting this policy, then we would have a little bit more to go on because we get some more variation, um, to, to play with while controlling for the policy. If New York is the only place that has this policy, then you'll never know whether it was the policy or the other four or five other things that make you, uh, New York not only unique cities. And I hate to, I mean, my English teacher's going, unique is unique. Uh, no, I don't mean, I, you know, I, I don't like that. Actually, I think there's degrees of uniqueness. You can think of it as Euclidean distance away from your nearest neighbor. But, but uh, 
I could argue that New York is an extraordinary city in lots of different metrics and lots of different dimensions. And we wouldn't know whether this policy, if it worked or, or failed to work, was simply because yeah. of those, those other dimensions. So it's a great endeavor, but you've got to get a few more cities in the, in the, in the, the treatment group. I, I have to say Great that, that what, it, what has convinced me the most is, yes, you would want more cities, but I think you would also agree. I, I think I've been very convinced by Shane's argument. If you got more cities that were also extreme in the X space, that wouldn't help you as much as it is. You'd no. like to get other cities that are more central because, again, whether you put in these regressors as linear regressors or however you do it, you're going to be making some extrapolation and, and in some sense that the effects on something extreme in the X distribution would be something that you would see in other parts of the distribution, which we have no evidence to suggest. Well, you, you know, I'm going to use the word here that, that, that if Cade were here, he would, he would, he would balk and make me explain but New York is undoubtedly what we would call a leveraged outlier <laughs> in the X dimension. And so therefore, whatever happens in, in it, it, because of its strange uniqueness, it has a huge effect on any kind of regression analysis. So you'd like to have other, other cities that populate out or spread out the, all the co- covariates and spread them widely. Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball, our COVID segment here for the last 18 or 19 months. We have three more segments to go. In the next two, uh, we'll be talking about kind of what caught our eye in sports. And then again, in Q4, we're going to be talking to Ryan Howerson, um, who's going to be talking to us about uh, vision. So uh, please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to the second quarter here of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of us and Cade Massey are here every week, recording here on our Zoom edition of Wharton Moneyball. As before, we just uh, have our first quarter on COVID. And now we're going to talk about our, if you'd like, our open sports segment. Um, Obviously, there's lots of things to talk about in sports, but of course, we're still knee deep in the Olympics. So I thought I would toss some topics out to my co-hosts and just run through a lot of interesting things that have caught my eye, both from a sports and analytics perspective from the Olympics. So let's get started. So the first one, and I'd love to hear your reaction. Um, For the first time ever, they had a race where... It was uh, a medley, uh, not a medley. They've always had these team events where multiple swimmers swim, in this case, four swimmers. Um, This was an event where there were two men and two women, and they actually each swam a different stroke. So one person swam the freestyle, one person was the breaststroke, one person was the backstroke, and uh, I have to think about what the other one was, Uh, whatever the uh, force made the free no i mentioned the freestyle the freestyle the backstroke the best stroke and the the butterfly butterfly thank you butterfly there it is i was going to say the one that looks like you're the frog the butterfly the butterfly no the breaststroke is the frog oh okay well each person had to decide uh each team had to decide so male or female to which stroke um Well, that determines it because the order was determined. The order of the strokes is determined. But who should swim it, male or female? And the males in the U.S. did something that was interesting. The first swimmer was a male. And then the last swimmer was a male. And the two, the second and third swimmers were both females. And there's been lots of criticism given because by the time Caleb Dressel, who is the 
greatest swimmer in the world today swam uh, the fourth leg, which was the freestyle, um, the U.S. was already eight seconds behind and basically was out of the race. Despite the fact that he swam a faster time in the four by 100 medley than he swam when he won the 100 meter, um, it's not like he didn't perform well. He swam faster than he swam when he won the gold. So I just wanted to know, Adi, I know you had some thoughts on this, both as a swimmer, but also as a statistician. What did they do wrong? Oh, oh, what did they do wrong? Uh, okay, so what, what they did wrong was not recognize that the goal of a race is to have the total time be the sum, as a sum, the smallest. And th- they just didn't keep their eye on the most obvious fact in, of the, the point of the race is to swim with the, small, with the shortest amount of time. And instead, what they did was they tried to sort of figure out, like, who's the best swimmer at each event, kind of in a ranking system. So the, Yan- the uh, Yankees, I didn't mean that. The United States has, uh, I guess some people do call Americans Yankees. Um, they, we have, the United States has uh, an incredible talent in backstroke with Murphy, with uh, women's uh, breaststroke, and then, of course, Caleb Dressel, who, has, who is the world's record holder in butterfly and, and the winner in freestyle, fastest man in the world today in swimming. So they were kind of oriented towards figuring out, let's get these swimmers in the race because they're the best at what they do. But missing the point that women's breaststroke in particular is way slower than men's breaststroke. And that by putting the fastest woman breaststroker in the world, even though she is, um, Layla Jacoby, that seemed sensible, but it was an actually incredibly foolish decision because so your point just to be put, clear is what yeah. you care about is the differential between That's men right. and women even if it's mm-hmm. the best man and the fifth sorry the the third best fifth best man and the best woman that's where there's going to be a massive difference. And so in some sense, the U.S. was doomed to fail before the they could not win the event. That's right. They could not win. And in fact, when I saw the race, I watched the race. When I saw it unfold, I realized smart teams are all putting men in the breaststroke because the gap there is enormous. Now you can talk about physiologically. Why? Uh, why is it so much smaller in the, in the freestyle? It's a more of a streamlined event where kicking is really important. Women have much lower, stronger relative, relative to men, lower bodies. Men have extraordinarily upper, much more upper body power, and they're particularly in the pull, and that's really what makes the breaststroke tick. Um, so it is a, it was almost a colossal error. I understood where they were coming from because I thought he, the, the coach was thinking, look, we have all this, this abundance of talent. We just need to get them in, and, and we know you can't do it. you, you got to have it almost an also-ran on the world stage um, because the, the Americans do, don't have – a world champion breaststroke that we've rarely ever had and in the men's side in the women's side we always have and they just sort of forgot about that so Adi, let me ask you, this seems to me to be a colossal and inexcusable failure of what you want to call it analytics that's fine but just basic you know someone could be three sec us uh, two seconds worse for a female, which is a huge difference, but just the male female gap is so large. This yeah. ha- and it's, but it's not as large for a different stroke. And it has to be. Can, can, can I, can I ask a question too? Um, was this a, was this a new uh, event added? Like, yeah, it's the first the time. No, but it was, no. was it added no, two no, days no, before no. the Olympics no. started? Do they, so they, they no, obviously it, never practiced this and tried out exactly. different combinations. I, I don't understand it. It's been around since 2013 on the world stage. Right. But only in the Olympics this year for the very first time. Um, but quite honestly, I, I actually think it's the thinking about it analytically just simply wasn't in the, the purview uh, 
of the coach. She just wasn't thinking, what is our total time? Add them up. There's a lot of things that are, that are particularly, you have to think that it's not just a trivial thing. Yeah, what you talked about, Eric, about how Caleb Dressel swam faster in his relay as he did in his individual event. That's to be expected because of two factors, primarily because you get to time your start you, to, the, to the swimmer coming in. When, you're, when right. you're racing off the blocks, you can't begin to move until you hear the starter gun. Now, Caleb Dressel wins his races because he's faster than everyone else off the block, and he's stronger. When you're coming in off a relay, you can time your entrance to the, the touch of the person in the water. It generally gives between a, a half a second to an extra second better than world records, um, than your individual records. But there's also things that you can do like draft. Uh, believe it or not, it's not quite like bicycling, but you, if you, if you uh, position yourself in the lane line uh, uh, with a swim, swimmer ahead of you, you can kind of in husband your case, though, Caleb Dressel was so far behind, there was no one to draft off of, but I know That's conceptually. Right. Well, let's stay in the pool, by the way. We could talk about this event all along. Um, let's talk about another one. I, let's stay with Caleb Dressel for a second. One of the things I was wondering is that he won five gold medals, which is obviously remarkable. But obviously, we've seen this before in the pool, at least yeah. on the men's side. You know, we, you know Mark Spitz, obviously, uh, Michael Phelps did it apparently almost every year. But yeah, it's, it's remarkable in the sense that it's happened like three times now in the last 40 years or something like that. But yeah, but I, I was going to ask you, do we think and, and maybe I, I don't know what evidence we have of this, but is swimming talent? unidimensional like if Caleb Dressel decided he wanted to be the best backstroker or if he decided he wanted to be the best in any single event could he just do that or or is it physiological or is it you know how much do we think like how much do we think there's variation that you have to match your body type to a specific type of event the the events are obviously far from orthogonal because Michael Phelps won like what, like twenty three gold medals across a variety of different things, right? I mean, yeah, the very did, fact that the same change. person wins all these events means that they are—they're they're, not but, quite. I mean, not, not quite, Shane. Uh, there are two that are very, very similar. So if we did a, a principal component analysis, yeah. we'd quickly identify the butterfly and the freestyle as being very similar on those and that dimension. And and Phelps was a butterfly or slash slash. Breath, uh, um, freestyle. freestyle. He, he also was very good at the individual medley because he was decent at backstroke and, and, uh, and breaststroke, not sufficiently bad at it to eliminate him, but he could not compete in those two, two races kind of individually. I, I um, asked a different counterfactual. If he had spent yeah. all of his time on uh, those, right. could he have been the best in them? You know what? I, I, I would guess not. Um, potentially backstroke because it's closer Breaststroke is a bit different. It's a different kind of physical kind of construction. Uh, shorter legs are good, but, it's, but you need more, a different kind of upper body. I'm not really sure, but the real issue, of course, uh, is the other dimension is sprinting versus distance. And, and there's middle and there's long distance. So there's really three levels of distance, just like there is in running. And I think that is, again, physiological. Um, Phelps was that middle. He wasn't a 50 or a 50 racer, a 50, feet, uh, 50 yard, uh, meters. Um, right. And he certainly wasn't 400 or above, but he was in that middle. So Ledecky is the long distance. She's extraordinary yep. there. Dressel's in the short distance. He's a sprinter. And, and Phelps is more in that middle, but kind of bleeds out in the in fast because he's just so remarkably talented. So let me ask you a, a, a related question. And it, it relates. It's perfect segue, Adi, from what you just said. So we saw that Ledecky won the 800 and the 1500. 
Uh, she was beaten uh, by the Australian uh, Titmus in the 200 and the 400, which are obviously shorter events by the definition of their name. Um, does it, but despite she had been the Olympic champion in those events, so I'm going to ask you a, a, a two-part, it's not a two-part question, it's one question with two parts to it. Michael Phelps was teasing that he could come back. He could come back and compete in the Olympics. Now, let me ask you a question. If that were true, and he were to do it at age 40, which would be how old he'd be at the next Olympics, can we, do we learn anything from Ledecky or from previous uh, swimmers? Would it be the 400 he would be in? Would it be the 200? Would it be the 100? Would it be, you know, what does age take away speed first, but not endurance? Like, what do we know about that? Or, and what do you think? I mean, any way to know? You know what? You know, Dana Torrey's uh, swam in the 50, which is the shortest uh, distance at around age 40. And I either yep. she got a bronze or got damn close to it. Um, proved herself to be one of the world's best, even at age four. I, rem- I remember when Dana Torres swam then. I remember that. Yeah, it was a remarkable. I I don't really know. Every, everything just seems to be topsy-turvy these days. All the all the assumptions of our youth have just been tossed. I mean, we see that in tennis. You see that in football. How old is that Brady character? I, I mean, 44 today. I, <laughs> I mean, quite honestly, a lot of the things that I would have said are categorically off the table, is even as little as five years ago. I'm starting to rethink. Um, could I believe Phelps could come back at 40? I don't think, I don't think so. I mean, what do you lose? I mean, you, and reaction time would probably mean it would be almost impossible for him. He was never a sprinter in the first place. Um, reaction time definitely goes, and that matters. It's a quarter of a second, I think, potentially. I think potentially, could, could he compete in the 400 IM, which is the only race that he still holds the world's record in, um, individual race? Maybe. Um, I, I wouldn't write it off. Yeah, and I mean, I guess without a, without a kind of like a solid physiological reason otherwise, you'd probably think he'd be best off kind of essentially what, specializing in whatever event he was most dominant in, you know, back in the day and just assume that the general kind That's of it. like aging effect, you know, doesn't bring him back entirely to the rest of the population. You know, but there's, there's this incredible race. We didn't talk about it. There's a bike race across the United States of America. Amazing. You get on a bike and then you ride across America and it's just race to the finish. The winner did it in 11 days. The winner was, it's, there's, no, there's no sex differentiation. It's men, female, there's one group. That's it. You just race. The winner was a woman and she was in her 50s. I mean, <laughs> what is this? Obviously, there's some things that age just can, does not hurt you, maybe even helps you. Who knows what they are? I wouldn't have guessed uh, bike racing is one of them. Um, (laughs) You also didn't didn't tell us how many. You you ride 22 hours a day for 10, 11 days. You sleep for for, uh, hours. It's crazy. Well, let me ask you another. Let's let's stay with the Olympics here. Um, One of the things I've also noticed, obviously, I don't think it would affect the pool. At least I don't think it would, um, is the effect of heat. So one of the things we've noticed is there's actually been very f- less world records broken than, than were expected because of both the heat and humidity. Well, you know, is there any way that we can, you know, when people, you know, in the postmortem of this Olympics, will people start to say, you know, 
if we want fast times, if we want world records, we've got to hold these in cities that are just, you know, there's not going to be 90 degree heat with 80% humidity or like, I mean, I assume at this point, the effects of heat on peak performance has to be just extraordinarily well known. I have no idea. This is something that I've never studied. I didn't even know that this was an issue for this Olympics in the indoor events. Obviously it's not an issue, but maybe it, Maybe the yeah, I mean, it has been. Outside. I mean, it's been unseasonally hot and humid. I mean, they kind of had a typhoon while the Olympics were going on, in addition to everything else that Japan's had to deal with for this Olympics. But yeah, I mean, the heat and humidity have been unseasonable even for Tokyo. Um, but we should be. I mean, we do have enough data. Basically, we have enough variation on these events, like over space and time, that we could presumably kind of almost like humidity adjust them or something like that. Well, here's one of the Um, things I do know, like one of the things I had studied and looked at, not, I mean, it's in the Olympics, but I've looked at the marathon and I've looked at optimal marathon times. This has been studied very well. The optimal temperature is somewhere around 55 degrees and, you know, 70 degrees. People think, oh, it's beautiful, sunny. That's way, way, way too hot, way, way too hot. And I would imagine that the same is true maybe for the 1500 meter, which is essentially a mile. I would imagine 70 degrees would not be the optimal time. And I think the temperatures have been 80 with 60 to 70 percent humidity. So effectively a 95 degree heat index. I would imagine this has tremendous effects on the times that we're seeing with people. And it certainly has had effects on like ten, some of the non-timed events too, like tennis, volleyball, the beach volleyball, et cetera. So, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely a, 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 fact, a factor in the performance. Whether so one it's going to push us to kind of, you know, locate the Olympics only in kind of ideal places, we'll run out of those. So one of the things, perfect segue to tennis, uh, Shane, that I wanted to talk about. So I always love these things where I ask you guys questions about would you trade X for Y? So the winner of the gold medal in tennis in the men's side, Alexander Zverev, he beat Djokovic in the semifinals. And then he beat, uh, he beat Kachanov in the finals. Would he take the gold medal? In the Olympics, she won, or would he take Wimbledon? Uh, I mean, I, I can't. I mean, I guess we're speaking for him. I, I, I personally would take Wimbledon. I mean, I would take the sort of. I, I think, given that the Olympics are, I mean, I, Olympic gold medal would be pretty awesome no matter what. But I, I feel like winning your the the kind of the the Wimbledon or the U.S. Open are kind of the top prize in your actual profession. I feel like li- winning those probably are kind of like have a greater effect on your legacy than a gold medal. I would I would personally slot the gold medal probably in somewhere you know like below Wimbledon and the U.S. Open maybe. But maybe above like Australian Open. I mean, I hate, I, I don't mean to insult, right. I guess, like Australian Open fans. But, you know, I mean, there is kind of a, an order of importance in these, in these things. And I think the gold medal would be kind of somewhere in there in terms of the majors. But it would, it would not equate to a top major. And for just me. for our uh, listeners. I mean, yeah, go ahead, Adi. I, it's, I think, I, not only do I concur, I think I, I concur even with more, more strength. I think it's not even close. Wimbledon is just, it's the, it's, it is the Olympics of tennis. Every, and it's every year. It's enormous prize money. It's the record books. I don't really think that the Olympics is something that particularly in tennis that people particularly remember from one next year to the next, because there's so many, um, I mean, think about it. There's, uh, there's, there's other tournaments in the summer that pay money. I mean, the greatest, have they, have they all been playing? What's the history? 
Uh, are the top do the top ten players typically play every time there's an Olympics in both men and women's or, or what's the rate? Well, for How an example, compared to Wimbledon, for example. Well, for an example, this year Nadal and Federer didn't choose to play because well injuries and or you know it's the Olympics. They'd rather be ready for the U.S. Open than exactly. play the Olympics. But I was going to bring up one exactly. other thing that's related. Um, in the last minute or so that we have here. Um, just so all of our fans know, not only did Djokovic lose to Zverev, but he, then he lost in the bronze match to Karina Busta. And just people say, who the hell is Pablo Karina Busta? Well, I just want to remind everybody, you remember the match where Djokovic hit the ball and by accident hit the uh, lines person in the throat and was disqualified from the U.S. Open? He was playing Karina Busta that day, and Karina Busta had won the first set in a tiebreaker and he was up a break in the second set when that happened. And that's why Djokovic was angry. So I'm going to make a prediction now. Djokovic is going to win more majors for sure. But we're starting to see inconsistency in his performance. That's all I'm going to say. To me, that's the first stage of the decline. He's not going to be the machine that we've seen going forward. I, I understand he won the first three majors this year. But I'm going to tell you. Um, he wanted desperately to win that match against Karina Busta, and he did not. And plus, he wanted to win. Nobody wants to come in fourth. He came in fourth, not third, no medal whatsoever. And I, I'm telling you, and also the match against Zverev, Zverev looked like the better player. Now, we've seen that before. In, in the French Open, Sitsipas was the better player for two sets, and then Djokovic came back. It was just really interesting. Well, guys, we could talk about the Olympics all day, but that's the first half of, of us here on Morton Moneyball. So, listeners, please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host today, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both professors of statistics, some combination of the three of us. And our colleague and friend, Kate Massey, are here every week recording here on Sirius XM through Zoom. And someday soon we may be live, but uh, hope, hope to do that soon. And, of course, if you want to join the conversation, you can always join us uh, by emailing us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We love uh, answering your questions. And again, you can follow us on Twitter at, at @wmoneyball at @wmoneyball. As a matter of fact, our co-host and friend Cade Massey posted something, a, if you'd like, a semi-conjoint experiment that uh, was participatable on uh, our Twitter account. So again, if you want to follow us, please follow us on at @wmoneyball. So guys, besides the NBA draft being last week, um, it's also when the free agent signing period happened. And I wanted to get your reaction to a number of signings that I thought were quite interesting, both from an analytics perspective, but from a, you know, is this person's contract make any sense from the long run? So let's start with the hottest property in the NBA, given last year's, uh, well, of course, everyone would rather have Giannis, but I don't mean Giannis, who's not a free agent. I mean, Trey Young of the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, he just signed an extension worth $207 million. And so I don't mind telling people I'm six feet and I weigh 195 pounds and Trey Young is six feet and he weighs 160 pounds. So the question becomes, um, is he going to be the next Allen Iverson? And by the way, despite what you might want to think about practice, Allen Iverson, Allen Iverson was one of the great players of all times. And Allen Iverson actually stayed relatively injury free until later in his career. So my question to you is if you had $207 million to spend, regardless of whether it's trading, et cetera, 
Would you spend it, given the injuries, the size of players, et cetera, on a six-foot, 160-pound player? So, Shane, you seem to have some thoughts. What are your thoughts? I mean, if Allen Iverson is the natural comparison, I mean, certainly Allen Iverson, whatever Allen, you know, contract Allen Iverson had at that kind of for the, the ages that this particular contract covered, he was more than worth it. And so, I, I mean, you know, if, if he can, obviously injuries, it's hard to kind of predict, but, you know, if he, if he can stay injury-free, I think, yeah, he's definitely worth that extension. You know, it's a tough thing, tough thing with basketball because contracts are so pay, underpay the, the superstars so, by so much, right? So if LeBron James or, or KD or Steph Curry could get what they're genuinely worth, it would be, what, two to three times what they're actually paid? So it's well, the salary cap would actually mean something in that context, yeah. yeah. So it's hard to know whether or not uh, I would make that argument. I, I mean, if you were asking me, was I, would I choose someone like that at your top salary, uh, you know, one, a, a genuine, you know, super, superstar, I would say, no, the worries about Trey Young would, be, would put me off. On the other hand, you're, you're essentially getting a deal no matter what. So uh, I would argue that, you know, it's a secondary concern. I will just say from my own perspective, someone, as you know, that watches a huge amount of basketball, obviously I was impressed by Trey Young, but I was also impressed by the way, how um, I understand Ben Simmons had all kinds of challenges in the playoffs. Ben Simmons shut Trey Young down uh, the Milwaukee Bucks shut Trey Young down. He's not KD. Let's not make it seem, I mean, nobody's KD when it comes to offense, but not, let's not make it seem like he's this unstoppable force that can score any time he wants. If he did, he wouldn't have gone four for 20 against Ben Simmons in game seven of the deciding game. And, and his, uh, you know, when he was shooting under 40% against the Milwaukee Bucks uh, during the conference finals, he wouldn't have done that either. So I, I think there's a, I don't think Trey Young is there as well. So here's another interesting thing that happened uh, through the NBA signing. So you guys heard, and I assume you saw, that the Lakers now have Russell Westbrook, right? I saw, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as of three days ago, here was the Lakers' entire roster. LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and a broken down and almost worthless Mark Gasol. That is their entire roster. And you might say, well, what do you mean? What, are, what about the other play? I, I just said that was their entire roster. No other players. So they actually have to have a 15-man roster. Now, they've recently just signed some other players. They just got Dwight Howard back from the Sixers. They just got Trevor Ariza, one of these three-point defensive guys. They got Wayne Ellington, another three-point shooter. And they got Kent Bazemore. And three of them, Howard, Ariza, and Ellington, they got for the league minimum. But they only have seven or eight players right now on their team. So my question to you is, can a team with three great players and maybe 12 other minimum contracts win the NBA title? Is that how you would distribute the finite salary cap if you guys were Daryl Morey or if you guys were Rob Palenka, the Lakers GM? I mean, it's obviously worked in the past, right? Miami did this. They have to stay healthy, though. No, no, no. No, no. Udonis Haslam wasn't a minimum paid player on that team. There were some other players on that team that were at least. Sure, sure. But, but, but I mean, you know, I I mean, your question is not really, I mean, leak, you know, they're not going to be so constrained that they have to do the leak minimum for 
every single other player. You're really kind of talking about if you have three superstars and the rest of your team is essentially replacement level or something like that, can you succeed? Maybe. And of maybe course, Matt- the main the main question in that is, can those three superstars stay healthy? Because we've seen lots of examples, at least in the last couple of years, of where these super teams have been doomed by injuries, right? Maybe Matt. Uh, but if they can stay our- healthy, yeah, I, th- I think you could do it. Maybe Matt can put this up on our screen, but I think the three of their combined salaries have to be somewhere near $120 million. And so I don't know how much salary cap that leaves them, but it can't be a big number. But Adi, you were going to make a point about this as well, about team construction and, you know, is this a good way to spend the money? Yeah, I just had a question. I mean, how many minutes? The big issue, of course, is, as we all know and talk about, there's the regular season, then there's the playoffs. In the regular season, they can't play 48 minutes. They probably can't average even even 40 or 35 minutes in the playoffs, they probably can to a more, to a, to a more, at least closer to a, a subsequent number, sub, a substantial number. That means that you probably could get away with three superstars and replacement level players in the playoffs and maybe not so much in the regular season. I can't tell whether or not the, they, they still can't play the whole game. That's correct. But, that right? is correct. Matter of fact, the, the most, well, Russell Westbrook is a known, let's call it uh, phenom when it comes to minutes played. Matter of fact, he typically leads the league, if not up there in minutes played. But no, in general, uh, in a game seven, he could play 48 minutes. But in general, no, the highest average in the league, Adi, might be around 36 minutes. You cannot average 40 minutes a game in the NBA. No, you cannot. You know, and so I'm, 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 so I'm, I'm doing a little I'm – I'm, I'm just so quick to do a calculation. It's a weighted average, right, of the, the, the 36 minutes or three quarters times your superstars plus one quarter times these re- real re- scrubs. I think that could be pretty bad. Um, so I'm not that optimistic that they're going to do well the regular season. I mean, extraordinary in the regular season. And I think they would be not the, not the, the you know, the, the favorites coming out. That would probably still be the Nets, right? Well, I mean, on, in the West, they probably are. The Lakers probably are going to be the favorites, I would guess. In the West, yeah. Because, again, to channel to Allen Iverson, talking about regular season? Regular season? <laughs> I mean, all you need to do is have them play enough to have basically a slightly above 500 record. And then you're in the playoffs, and then you take it off from there. I mean, we, I mean, the regular season is essentially meaningless for good teams. Right. Well, to give me some credit, by the way, um, remember I estimated that their three salaries were 120 million. Uh, Matt Datz, our producer, just confirmed their total salaries are exactly 120 million dollars. So now the question, of course, is how much more do they have? To, they have 12 other players they have to sign. Um, is the salary cap 150 million, 170 million? I agree with you, Shane. It really does matter. Because if the other 12 players all have to be at let's call it two million or less, that's very different. If you can sign some five, six, eight million dollar players who can be some excellent players. But I agree with you, Adi. It's a weighted average of excellent minutes. I mean, that's the way it is. And then you're right. In the playoffs, can they get away with just playing seven or eight players with a short rotation where you'll always have at least two of the three of them, big three, on the court at any time? That could absolutely be a winning formula in the playoffs. But I, well, let me ask you a question. If I gave you right now LeBron, AD, and Russell Westbrook, or KD... James Harden and Kyrie, which big three would you take? The one with LeBron. Always the one with LeBron until proven <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> uh, smoking like a true Bayesian. I think you're uh, you're out. You're probably right. <laughs> 
So, but again, is- I mean, the, the argument against it would be the extent that you'd want. I mean, again, because I do think that this the super team tra- strategy does tend to work in the NBA. The NBA is mostly won. The championship is mostly won by super teams, but conditional on them staying healthy. It's won by healthy super teams. And so injury is the big thing that kind of, I think, really goes against this sort of super team kind of strategy. And so that would be the only one where I would argue maybe against LeBron, basically, because he is probably one of the of of the ones you mentioned, maybe the more injury prone just because of his age. Are you at all worried that, um, you know, well, I'll put I'll use the vernacular here. Russell Westbrook ain't one squat. And actually, if you look from an analytics perspective, Russell Westbrook is actually not a good shooter at all. Matter of fact, there was most of last season, maybe he ended up under 40% shooting. And, and his effective field goal percentage is, even, is really bad because he's not a good three-point shooter. And let's also remember, he did play a number of years with KD and Harden. That was the OKC machine. He had, it was Harden. Westbrook, Durant, all on OKC. And they also had other decent players around them, and they didn't win. So uh, w- one could argue whether Westbrook is a superstar in the sense of a positive. Like, here's what I'll say, I guarantee you the following. With LeBron James and, and Anthony Davis on the court, by the way, um, I, and now Dwight Howard, the chances of him averaging 10 rebounds a game must be near zero. Like they don't want him. They don't need him averaging ten rebounds a game. So he's either way. It'll be a very interesting Lakers team. Very very interesting Lakers team. Okay, let's move. Yeah, on I to mean, big- I guess it really yeah. is about whether he complements their their particular what That's they're looking the for or not. And I, that is a great question. Well, I got to. So I have to. Adi's been so patient. We haven't talked about baseball, and we and we're still we're in Q three of the show. So Adi, I want to ask you a question, and it could be about the Yankees or not. It just let's let's take a team. Okay, let's take a team who has scored 426 runs and given up 432. What would you guess the record of that team is after 105 games? I just want to say it again. They've scored 426 and they've given up 432. So they've given up more runs than they've scored. I'll also tell you they're the fourth lowest scoring team in the league right now, just to let you know. And that's not just in the league they're in, like let's say they're an American League team, but combine all teams, American and National League. What would be the record of that team, whether you use Pythagoreans, 426-4, against? Adi, at 105 well, well, games, what would you predict their well, record to be? I, I know the Pythagorean almost to, to the decimal would be about 52 to 50, and 53 out of 105 games, or 51, yep. 50, 51 and 53 in, uh, in 104 games. Very, very cl- close to 50-50. They, I, you're talking about the Yankees. I know the Yankees have been blown out a bunch this year, and I don't think they've ever blown anyone out this year. <laughs> they just they just cannot be- muster a serious offense, you know, offensive display. I think they just know, beat Tampa Bay 7-1. That might be the closest to a blow. That's about the done. worst they've done. But they no, but Adi's right. I am talking about Tampa. For yeah. our listeners, yeah. I am talking about the Yankees. I yeah. wanted to give the Yankees – I don't say some credit because the fact is that the $200 million Yankees, whatever their payroll is, is the fourth lowest scoring team in the league is impressive. That's impressive, by the way, to spend all that money and and not score any runs. Um, And by the way, the only teams that are less than them, by the way, are the Mets, the Marlins and the Cardinals. Those are the three teams that are lower. But 
Do you find it impressive at all that the Yankees are four or five wins above Pythagorean with the uh, scores? The, I mean, is that I, to say something the about the closing ability or something about the team? Well, I can tell you that the, the Pythagorean, uh, the standard deviation of the Pythagorean is pretty low. So I think they're at least at one, if not one and a half, maybe even two standard deviations. I have to check that uh, over their, over their um, Pythagorean expectation. So they've, they've won a good deal more than we would expect given the, the numbers of runs and the numbers of runs scored and the numbers of runs allowed. What's incredible is that a team with that much talent and that much money has scored so little. That's, that's just shocking. I mean, the, what happened to all the Yankees from LeMahieu to Urshela, obviously Judge is having a decent year, but not a, not a ridiculous one. Stanton hasn't shown up. Um, uh, their home run champion, Luke Voigt from last year, also disappeared. What is, I mean, uh, Glaber Torres, uh, they, they have some roster mistakes. I mean, uh, sentimental favorites like Brett Gardner, who I don't think he's over the Mendoza line. He's not. He's below, so, still below 200. And yet they don't make any action to get rid of him. I mean, they, they just signed Gallo and Rizzo. To make yeah, no, no, no action at all yeah. on the part yeah, of the Yankees right. grabbing two, <laughs> two of the best hitters in baseball. Right, right. I mean, I, it was the, like the, problem the Yankees is, of, all t- of all time. I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, no. And I, I don't mean, think I remember the pro- them doing that. I mean, the problem the Yankees have now is kind of the problem the Yankees always sort of have whenever they've quote-unquote struggled, you know, with their gigantic payroll, is that usually if they're signing, if they're kind of paying, you know, older, kind of more injury-prone superstars, they don't have, you know, places to put them in the field. So Stanton occupying essentially the DH spot permanently really kind of hamstrings them when they have people like Luke Voigt or like whoever else that they kind of want to rotate in and out to try and prevent injury. So I think that, that, that aspect of roster construction is, is kind of goes against them. But I mean, mostly I just think they've had kind of a lot of bad luck in the first half. And now they're now, now we're going to see the Yankees come back and everybody well, will, well, we're beyond somehow first... wrap it as a, a under God dog story or something. Well, like we that. are well beyond the first half, but I will say the following, as you said, Shane, um, there are only two and a half games. I think it was or three out of the wild card. You know, they get in the game. Anything yeah. can happen. Anything can happen in the playoffs. Uh, but I was just, yeah, they can throw Garrett Cole and that sticky stuff at whoever in that wild card and they'll be in. Well, let me ask you another thing now that we're tracking into baseball a little bit in our last couple of minutes here. So, Adi, we all made predictions. I think he had 34 home runs at the All-Star break, uh, Shohei Otani. Um, I believe he's stuck. Well, stuck. He's got 37. Um, There's now only, you know, let's call it 60 games, 55 games left in the season. What is your prediction now? I think we all said he's, you know, I don't want to say a shoe-in, but a very good chance to make 50. Do you still give him a very good chance to make 50 home runs? He's at 37. He needs, let's say, 13 in 55 games or so. So he, you know, uh, he needs to average, you know, point. Oh, well, a quarter of a home run a game. So he needs to hit it a 40 home run clip for the rest of the season to get to 50. What do you think, Adi? Does he make it? I think he's uh, less than 50. I would take an even up bet that he won't make it. Do you think he will lead the league? He's got 37. I think the next person has 34. That's a trickier one because I want to regress both the top candidates down to uh, down to the mean. Um, unless that was someone who regularly hit 50 home runs. And said, since that person isn't in the game this year doing that, I don't even know who it would be, um, potentially, uh, then I, I, would, I would say that he's a better than 50% chance to lead the league. Hmm. 
So it'll be, again, interesting to me that, again, another season will pass, likely with no 50 home run hitter. And so this is starting to remind me of, you know, eras that were pre-performance enhancing drugs when, you know, I remember as a kid, oh my God, George Foster hit 52 home runs. And then there was a year Cecil wow. Fielder maybe broke 50. And as we all know, Hank Aaron never broke 50. And Willie Mays, I think, did it once. And so um, I think there's, uh, that, that's certainly interesting. Let's talk about one other thing in our last couple minutes left. Um, Michael Brantley, I think is Michael Brantley, is leading the league in batting average. And he's at 331. That seems to me to be a very historically low leading batting average. We know batting averages are down in the league significantly. But would it surprise you? And maybe he ends up, let's say he even ends up at 325 at leads the league. Does that seem like an extraordinarily low league leading batting average to you? It doesn't to me. I remember when Yastrzemski won the Triple Crown. I don't think he broke 320 that year. He, he, sure he, he actually hit, I think it was 301. But remember, that was 1967. That was the same year that they raised the mound and all of that. That was all in that same year. Right. But yeah, also, certainly. But yeah. For, 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 for my viewing lifetime, which is mostly steroid era and like more recent times than that, it does seem historically low. But I mean, again, historically only relative to, you know, the last 40 years, not going back to like well, the listen, 60s. Well, listen, I don't know what's happened since they, since they got rid of the spin, the, the sticky stuff, but going into the All-Star break, or their first third of the season, the batting average for the, for the major leagues was at an all-time low on pace all time. 1968, whatever that year was, which is insane. It has crept up, and it does seem that some of the offense is returning now that the, the spin rates are down by 100 or so or 200 uh, revolutions per minute. But I don't, I'm not so astounded by three, 330 or even 325. I, don't, I, think, I mean, I think that's just a low side of typical. Maybe, maybe 1 in 10 is that low. Maybe 1 in 15. Um, that's another thing we could look up and know the answer, but I don't know right now. Well, my, my prediction is that um, uh, I think Shohei might make it to 50. I, I think he could just get there. I don't think anybody else will. And to me, 330 something seems like a pretty low batting average. It'll be interesting to see what happens uh, in the rest of the baseball season. So, guys, that's three quarters of uh, Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have a fourth quarter coming up uh, where we're talking to Ryan Harrison from uh, Slow the Game Down. Uh, he's going to talk to us about uh, the use of vision technology to improve people in all kinds of sports. So, uh, stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. And as everyone knows, uh, during the fourth quarter of our show, at least in the last 18 or 19 months, we've been having a guest. And actually, as everyone knows, uh, it's one of my favorite parts of our show is that we get to talk to experts in the field of analytics, data science, and kind of people that are trying to take the work that they're doing and applying it to improve athlete performance. And today's guest, Ryan Harrison, is certainly no exception. Uh, Ryan is the co-founder of Slow the Game Down with his father, Dr. Bill Harrison. Uh, he has over 20 years experience working with professional athletes. He's a consultant to, well, I could spend all of our time just talking about who he's a consultant to, but major league teams, NCAA teams, NFL teams, NHL, volleyball, tennis, um, and when you hear about what Ryan's doing, you'll be like, well, who wouldn't want this kind of advice? Who doesn't want to A, slow the game down? But of course, visual training and vision analytics is obviously a big part of every sport. So Ryan, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. 
Yeah, appreciate the uh, invite, Eric. Uh, excited about this. So first, why don't we just start with the beginning? Um, why don't you tell us what um, what exactly is, I think you use the term elite vision performance training, and what is it not? Yeah, you know, um, you know, a lot of people think about when it comes to vision is, can they see, can they not see? Are they wearing glasses, contacts, any of those things? And even uh, when you think about a lot of sports, when people drop balls, you always say uh, they need to get their eyes checked. And a lot of times it's not about the clarity of their vision. It's really about how the brain uses those eyes to perform. So there, there's different skill sets that we look at, um, you know, from the fact that how their depth perception, how their brain uses both eyes, um, you know, uh, different visual skills. And we look at that in the sport that they play or they they perform and try to figure out what can we do to enhance that aspect of sport. So when you look at, um, you know, let's say baseball, because I do a lot in baseball. Um, yep. If, you know, you can have great swing, but if you don't see the ball very well, your swing's not very good, right? Doesn't matter how good that is. So most sports, whether it's racing, whether it's volleyball, whether it's football, all begin with their vision and how they process that information. So that's what we look at as far as elite vision performance training is how those eyes guide the mind and the body. So let's start with the beginning. You know, most people would say, you know, this is and this is obviously a misconception. um, Great vision is born, you know, nature over nurture. So your comment is, is that you can actually be trained to actually have better, I mean, a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, not, I'm even nervous now to even use the word vision because that may not even be the way you think about it because it implies it's a one-dimensional thing. Worse vision, better vision. And that's probably an oversimplification too. Yeah, and you know, you, you bring up a good thing, nature over nurture kind of thing. And you know, if you think about it, people don't know they can see better until they find a way they can see better. So they all think it's the way they are born and the way they process things um, until they're shown that they can see things a different way and they can, you know, literally slow things down, but also see things a little sharper and clear. So there's a combination of nature, but there's a combination of nurture as well. And there are things that they can do to train their visual abilities to perform. Now, kind of backtrack a little bit is even as we talk about youth sports, uh, youth sports, you know, a lot of it's survival of the fittest. And so people with great eyes tend to rise to the top. But there, are, those are some of the limitations that take an athlete that never get to the next level because they don't have that visual abilities to get there. Or visual tactics is another thing that we talk about, how to, how to use their eyes to get to that next stage. So when is, um, like... Ideally, if someone wanted to optimize performance, would they start working with you and your firm like at age, I'm making this up, 8, 10, 16, you know, college level? I mean, when would be the right time or um, is there never, it's never too early? What, what would be the right time? You know, it's, it's, it's a good question too. And, um, you know, a lot of times people ask me and I'll say really around 12, 13 um, is probably a good age. It doesn't mean they can't do certain things prior. Um, And there are some things that um, not even on the sports side, but um, vision therapy side that can be should and what can be done at a younger age. But, you know, the 12, 13 for what we do is really about, again, they got to understand what we're talking about, not just test out. They got to understand how they use their eyes to perform. Now, I say that, but 
you know, my experience is working at the top level. I, I've worked with some of the top pro athletes in all different sports. And, um, you know, they're looking for that little edge. They want the edge over the next guy. And a lot of them won't talk about it because that's their edge. You know, they want, they want that to be their thing. I've had many athletes go, I'm not telling anyone I'm doing this because I don't want them to, to do it as well. So the, a lot of these, we work with a lot of those guys that find their plateau and they're, they're struggling. They're not getting to that next level or guys that just want the edge and they want to figure out all aspects of the game to, to get better. So, you know, we design kind of our evaluations, training and all those things around who that athlete is and what their needs are as well. So let me understand. I would imagine that um, when you start working with someone on vision training, it's not like you have, let's call it one session with them. And all of a sudden, you know, I may get up, you turn a 280 hitter into a 320 hitter immediately. So how, I have a two part question. How long does the process typically take? And obviously there's heterogeneity and variation. And some, for some people, the answer might be never. And then my second question is, since it is a long run process, how do you keep people like what are the metrics, the let's call it the intermediate metrics that you measure that can convince that superior athlete that, you know, don't worry, it's working. I know you may not have seen the, you know, because as we know, let's say baseball, uh, Ryan, which you talk about, you know, you're, it's like coin flipping. You're flipping it. If you're lucky, a three a 30 percent coin, sometimes you're going to slum, sometimes you don't. So how do you convince them that don't worry, things are improving? Yeah, well, Eric, that's a lot to uh, digest and a lot to spit out. I don't know. If <laughs> oh, we have, we have time here on Morton Moneyball <laughs> to answer all those questions on there. But you know, it it is a game of chance. But we got to put that game of chance into our favor. And you know, even you bring up uh, a few things there. The slump. You know, a, a lot of times what I tell hitters uh, in the hitting standpoint is when they're going good, they always talk about how well they're seeing the ball. Yep. And and when they struggle, they talk about the ball being like an aspirin tablet. Right. So the cycle of hitting becomes they see it really well, whether it's because they're relaxed, because they're calm, uh, because they drink a Red Bull, whatever it is. You know, they, they're seeing the ball really well and it creates a lot of confidence. And then they all decide to become Superman and try to do a lot more. And then they miss. They can't hit. Then they struggle. Then they circle around. They quit and they go, I'm just going to see it and hit it. And it works. So some of it is really about how they apply their vision, not necessarily the skill sets of what they do. Now, going back on the data analytics side of things, um, you know, luckily, you know, I used to travel out. We've done a lot of things over our, you know, my dad started in 1971 doing this with the Kansas City Royals uh, uh, Baseball Academy, which I don't know if you're familiar with. And, um, you know, we had some manual testing that we did over years, and I got data of players from George Brett to Mike Sweeney to, uh, you know, lots of guys and different organizations, but, um, and today. And so unfortunately we probably didn't do the analytics like we should have back then, as far as those numbers that we have, but today with computers and technology, you know, there are a lot more things that we're able to do, including a, um, we use a high-end eye tracking device that measures high-end eye movements, um, that was designed uh, basically off of a, a NASA patent pending eye movement uh, um, program, basically. And so we can see how a player's brain reacts to something, how fast their eyes are, how accurate they are. Um, and we can see through training uh, when that changes and adapts on there as they get better. So there are some things that we can, if we have the time and energy with players, 
that we can, you know, pre-test and test throughout as well as post-test to see where things are going. But sometimes we don't have that technology to use. So a lot of it is talking to the player. Um, so there's a little bit of sports psychology kind of aspect into it is how are they seeing the ball? Are they seeing it like they're capable of? How are they seeing the field? How are they seeing, you know, are things seem fast? Do they seem slow? What are you looking at? And there's some tactical techniques that a lot of these guys get a lot of value out of. So Ryan, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that, and, and you, those comments basically kind of, relate to sort of the question I had when, uh, when you were uh, when I was reading kind of about some of your work is, of course, what we call vision is both the actual receiving of visual signals through your eyes, but then also the interpretation of said signals by your brain. And I guess either one of those can kind of be a, a roadblock or there could be some kind of issue um, you know, I mean, you think I, I think of Jameis Winston getting LASIK surgery. That was clearly sort of like they at least felt that a big part of his problem was not interpretation, but the actual, you know, seeing seeing the, the the field of view itself. How much of you know how much of your guys's work is is essentially diagnosing where in that kind of pipeline from eye to brain things are are can, can be improved um, versus and, and how much I guess does measurement and analytics kind of factor into sort of diagnosing that. Yeah. Um, you know, that depends a little bit on the situation that we're involved in. So, and again, how much time, but uh, you know, the diagnosis is important, um, you know, and trying to find out what's, what these visual issues might be the roadblocks that they have. And, you know, even just to add to this sometimes, it, and I'm not going to say Winston is, is this issue. Um, but I know there are some in, other NFL quarterbacks that I've evaluated that have, uh, as well as catchers, is another one. Just to say this is sub uh, concussion uh, problems that that create vision issues that they don't realize. They just know things are are slower. Things don't look right, and, and I say slow in a bad way, not in a good way. Um, and they're not processing as quick, but they don't know how to tell anyone that information. So, you know, as much information that we can get on that athlete from a clarity standpoint to a, to a visual skill standpoint, and then be able to, you know, address those issues and apply them so that they can perform, you know, give them their, their, the ownership to be able to perform at the level that they're capable of. So we're here talking to uh, Ryan Harrison. Uh, Ryan is the co-founder of Slow the Game Down, a company uh, his father started in 1971. Uh, Ryan has over 20 years of experience working with professional athletes. And uh, Morton Moneyball, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host, uh, Shane Jensen. So one question I had, can you give us an example, without giving away the secret sauce, of course, <laughs> of what would be an example of a training exercise that you might give to a major league hitter that would help him improve performance yeah obviously again there's a lot of things out there there's things that we use from other companies there's things that we've developed ourselves to be able to do it so knowing what our what we're trying to accomplish will will you know manipulate whatever we're using for that situation well let me ask you a question let's let's break that down before you answer my other question which was so for a hitter besides let's say seeing the ball better maybe like earlier out of the pitcher's hand maybe having a faster reaction time, maybe as Shane just said, a faster processing speed. Like, are there other goals? Like, what would be the other goals besides, you know, see the ball better, react better, swing faster and better? Well, probably our primary goal is to get their binocularity better. And what is that? Okay, good. Now we're in the technical. What does that mean? Yeah, and the binocularity is how the brain uses both eyes. So people talk about dominant eye all the time. 
And dominant eye is overplayed, to be honest with you. There is something called the sensing eye as well. And sometimes the brain is using the dominant and sensing to be the same, and sometimes they're the opposite. So learning how their, their brain is using these two eyes, and, the, and these two eyes move uh, around a track, just like you know we're looking at the screen, our eyes are moving on there. And there's actually 12 of uh, 14 muscles, so six in each eye, that are actually moving these eyes. And those muscles are very strong but they can be very tight as well. They're not as flexible on certain people or they have some issues with one of the eyes. So trying to get those muscles to be more uh, fluid, to track, to work better. So when the brain is looking at an object in space, ball, field, whatever, opponent, all these, is the two eyes are aimed at that object. And what happens with some people, whether this is at a younger age or concussion or older age, is some of their eyes aim a little bit closer than the object or let's say the ball for this instant and when their eyes aim in front they tend to be a little bit faster they tend to pull off they tend to love the fastball and there are guys that look like great athletes because they're just they they can handle the speed of the game because they see things a little bit closer than than everyone else now there are guys that see it a little bit further away and they tend to be late on things and they tend to be better at slower action not at the higher action and they tend to fall away because they're, they're not catching up with the speed. So what we're looking at a lot of times is how is the brain using these two eyes? Are they aimed in the right spot? Do they have that ability to track? So even going back, and I know we're in audio, but from a video format, if a right-handed hitter is aiming at his pitcher, he's got one eye that's kind of opened up to the left and the other one's converged yep. here. And if those muscles aren't firing and working together, they won't accurately track that ball. And you'll see white, you'll see spin. You'll, well, you shouldn't say, not spin, you'll see motion. And, and that's one thing in our peripherals, we can see color and we can see motion. But we only have about five degrees in each eye of central vision that sees detail and clarity. And of that five degrees, which combined can be anywhere between eight, 10, however you want to measure that. Um, if that's not right on that object at a given moment, we're, we see but we're not seeing things really sharp and we're not seeing the detail. We're not seeing spin. We're not seeing speed nearly as well. So that's kind of one of my, our major goals of a skill set is really getting that binocularity to perform at a very high level on there. So let's imagine there's lots of things you could measure about someone's uh, vision, or let's just stay with baseball, even looking at the ball. Have you guys done analysis of, well, if we could improve that measure, they would become, a, I don't want to say, I don't want to simplify it, say they'd become a better hitter, but they'd have a better chance of performing better. In other words, from a, let's call it from an analytics perspective, do you know the key drivers of performance? And if so, uh, how do you know this? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yes, 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 and yes, Eric, to, to all your answers. And, um, you know, like, so probably, you know, talking in the baseball side of things, because that dominate a lot of our uh, career as well as, you know, softball, collegiate softball uh, as well. So that those kind of uh, eye-hand coordination sports, um, great hitters or consistent great hitters tend to have high level binocularity skill sets and it's a measurable skill. Now it doesn't mean they're going to be a great hitter. It means they have the ability to be, to see things differently than other people. Now, and you can improve someone. This was my first question. You can improve someone's binocularity through appropriate training. 
Yeah. And I'll give an example of that in just a sec, but you sure. can prove, a, prove it. And, you know, there are some guys that probably have a limit than the other guys, but again, you know, and, and Shane kind of mentioned this, we can give them all the skills available and great clarity, great visual skills, but they still got to do the task. And if they're thinking about their family at home or they're worried about their mechanics or they're worried about, you know, other stuff, it doesn't work. And just to kind of give you an example is, you know, sometimes you're taking a book or a newspaper or something you're reading and you're going through it. You flip a few pages and then you say, what the heck did I just read? Now, your eyes were aimed in the right spot, but you were lost in thought about something else. And so your eyes weren't necessarily taking in that visual information to be accurate identifier, even though they are moving properly, they're aimed in the right spot. So getting that athlete, one, to have the skills, but two, how do they, and I call it inhale, how do they inhale the visual information that they need to inhale to be able to make those decisions that they need to be? Now, they're, in, in talking about baseball, there are plenty of baseball players that have good visual ability and aren't great hitters. And the reason is they see things like a friggin' beach ball. Everything looks so good that they just get so hungry, they swing at everything, okay? And then there's guys who are so tight, it doesn't, you know, change in speed. They don't know what's going on because they're not seeing that information. Now, some of the great hitters of all time, and as you know, hitting that, that coin you said, hitting 300 is, is not an easy thing. And I think over, over all time with significant at-bats, there's probably around 250, I think it is. I haven't looked at it for a while, that have hit career 300. And you're talking guys like George Brett, Rod Carew, Tony Gwynn, um, you know, Wade Boggs, um, Sean Casey, actually, who I do a lot of work with. Those guys had great visual plans not just great eyes, but great visual plans of how they attacked and saw the ball differently than everyone else. And I think that's one thing in today's game is we have a lot of swingers, but we don't see a lot of things. They're, at, they're not actually swinging. And when we just swing, we'll run into some things, but it's not that consistent, confident contact that a lot of people have. But even in other sports too, like some of the quarterbacks that I, I saw over uh, this offseason, probably – you know, I, I'm going to say about eight NFL and a bunch of college and, and, and w- was able to evaluate them. Some of those guys wanted to be the best. They want their vision to be phenomenal. They see slight differences. When they get knocked off, they know that something's not right. There are other guys that I, I'm not a big fan of their visual skills, but they're great athletes and they get by. And they're probably going to get by for a few years. And then you're going to see their game kind of you know, and, and you probably can call a lot of these guys out that have kind of a, a wavy, uh, uh, you know, career because they show some burst of greatness, but there's no consistency on there. And I, you know, I haven't tested everyone, obviously, but I believe those guys don't have those visual abilities to uh, to solve those those trouble times when they need to. Let's talk about something, uh, Ryan. Let's build on something you just mentioned. Without mentioning any specific teams, of course, how has your work been used? Like, I could imagine it used for player enhancement. I could also imagine an NFL owner saying, Ryan, we want you in the draft room, and we want you to have evaluated all of these players and look at their eye movement. Um, I could imagine it using for contracts, and uh, you know, who's consistent and who should we pay for the long run. Can you give us a sense of, without mentioning, obviously specific names although Shane and I and our listeners here on Morton Moneyball would be happy if you want to bring some news (laughs) here on some specific names um but uh can you talk about let's call it the breadth of sports evaluative problems or training problems you've seen and worked on 
Yeah, you know, Eric, it's a good question. And I probably need you to, to sell me a little bit more with, with what you just said there. But, um, you know, like so we started, my dad started in 1971 working at the Kansas City Royals. And um, some of the guys that were involved back then were John Sherholtz. So he yeah. worked with the Braves for many, many years uh, when John was running the organization, uh, as well as some other people that that came out of there. Jack McKeon was part of that. Sid Thrift, uh, if you remember Sid Thrift, we were all part of that Royals Baseball Academy. And over the many years, uh, as things changed, you know, we, we've worked with different uh, organizations at different levels. Some of it is for development only, working with minor league players. Some of it was for evaluations. Some of it was for draft and going in and, and going out and looking at top prospects uh, to be able to see it. Now, there is a little bit of an art to the science that we have. And, you know, my experience from the art of, of learning what my dad did was, was pretty amazing. There's some technology out there. There's some equipment out there. There's some doctors out there that are doing things. Um, I'm not going to say they're doing things as good as I'd like to see them being done. But, you know, a lot of organizations are adding things. The problem is kind of like what we talked about. There's there's some misconceptions of uh, vision in the brain and how they work. And so um, it, it's a little there's a little bit of disconnect of good technology and these guys to get there. But, you know, this new stuff that we're using with this with this eye tracking device that I've had for the last two years. There's some great information that we're getting out of this that I think is going to um, play huge dividends down the road for these guys. Do you think there's ever a day where, um, you know, can how much of what you're doing requires the use of, let's say, an eye tracking device or can a lot of it like can you just watch film like can you it is like will there ever be a time where whether it's artificial intelligence or video technology where you'll just be able to stare at the i don't know the espn broadcast you'll watch every single hitter and you're like oh that person needs help with this muscle group. oh that person has poor binocularity oh this person or do you actually have like i'll call it um in-person detailed types of measurements obviously uh, the in-person detail uh, is going to be a lot better uh, can you see things a little bit on video? Sure. I mean, that's, you know, just like a hitting instructor or a coach or that they look at position and they see things right or wrong. They see things, right? Uh, same things from us. I, I look at things visually. How are they processing information? Um, what, what were they looking at prior if I have the right angle? Um, you know, how they went into the box or different stuff. So, you know, I, I can't say that's for everyone, but, you know, I know uh, I listen to one of your other shows about technology and VR and, and yep. you know, there are some things that do work and don't work out there. And there's things that I, I imagine in the future, um, you know, especially with AR technology, that's going to be phenomenal and being able to understand a lot more eye movements in the real world, um, as well as what's going on in the brain and, and what's firing and what's not firing. So I'm sure the future is going to have some, you know, everyone thinks technology today is great, but the future is probably going to be crazy. So one of the areas in which I know you work on, which I wanted to make sure we touch on, which is obviously a huge topic today is concussions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, what is the old expression? The eyes are the window to the mind. Yep. I would imagine, well, it's the first thing when someone potentially has a concussion, they start, you know, whether it's shining light in their eyes, they're trying to see if the person can track. So can you talk about the work that you're, you're, that slow the game down is doing on both 
concussion uh, evaluation, because I would imagine if you had a baseline, that would be assessment. But also, I know you're doing work in concussion vision rehabilitation. So can you talk about that area? Yeah, you know, I mean, the first thing you you mentioned there is they look at the eyes to see if they have a concussion or not. Yet yeah, it's probably the last thing they do to uh, rehab it. They look at everything else and they forget about this vision. So, you know, vision is so important that people, um, you know, they, they talk about bright lights or dizziness and and vision's not the only thing that goes on concussions. And this is one of the things that makes it so difficult is every concussion is very different and every, every symptoms can be very different. There's no like one-stop shop that needs to be done. So for us, you know, we look at the visual symptoms that, that uh, athlete or a non-athlete might have and how we can address those symptoms and calm them down. So kind of like a, you know, a short little answer into this is we talked a little bit about these muscles of those eyes and there's a lot of nerve intervention. There's three cranial nerves that are involved in, in moving those muscles. And a lot of times those muscles get knocked away. Not, you know, they're, they're not working real well because uh, like I tell people, think of them like highways, they had an earthquake and they're just those, those pathways aren't opening up nearly as well. So we want to retrain those pathways. Now, most people just kind of shake their, you know, I'm not going to, worry about it. It's, you know, I can get by and get fight through. And there's some people that have uh, more difficult challenges and not every concussion has these difficult challenges, but, you know, we just kind of look at that, those visual skill sets that they're struggling with. And we try to rehab those. And part of the reason that, that I strongly believe in what we do from that is I did notice with my many years of working with baseball is we had a lot of catchers who were very intrigued and interested in what we were doing. And never really understood why until later that we kind of tied the two is these guys are, you know, they're dealing with these foul balls. They're dealing with balls off the helmet. They're not full concussed guys, but they're, they're, they know they don't see like they were seeing before. And so they always wanted to find what can I do? Can, can I do more? And so um, I do think for those guys, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a help out there. There are some concussions that have more in depth and, and more struggles that we'll refer out to some of our other uh people out there as well, but we just attack the visual aspect of the sport. Ryan, maybe I'll ask you one last question in the time that we have left. Um, which sport do you, well, it's a two-part question, but it's related. Which sport, and this is maybe even a stupid question, but which sport requires the best vision and which sport do you enjoy working with athletes the most on or which one's the most challenging? Um, well, I think people would, would would get mad at me if I didn't say baseball was one of the hardest visual demands on there. Um, but I, I do think there's a lot of sports that have hard visual demands. Um, the, but you know, baseball, because you have the change in velocity and you have the movement up and down and in and out and uh, front and back, it's, it's, it, you know, and, and I even look at, again, I, I bring this up a lot as I look at the task of an athlete not their goals, not what they want to do, hit home runs, hit 300, all those things. But what do they have to do to accomplish those goals? They have to see a target. And in baseball, they got that, that ability to see the ball accurately, like you said, and, and put a good swing on it. And even when it comes to golf or when it comes to tennis or when it comes to race car driving, there's, there's a visual input that's, that's in there. And some of them are a little more drastic, like a hockey goalie, you know, similar to a hitter. Uh, where uh, a hockey position player has more peripheral awareness and other visual demands than what a goalie might have. So, you know, in a quarterback compared to a running back, compared to a DB, to compared to an offensive lineman, 
what blows my, my mind away, even as much as I've done this, is when I go through an analysis of their visual skill sets, not every time, but many times I could tell what kind of hitter, what kind of defensive lineman the guy is, where his weaknesses in, as a corner are, where he struggles to drop balls, where he makes good catches. And they all look at me like, you're crazy. How'd you know this? And I said, that's because how your eyes and your brain are interacting. And so there is a, there, that's the hard that people don't put that emphasis into this. But when they learn about it, they're like, oh, that makes sense now of why things are going on. So kind of going back in, in your question there of what's the most difficult or, or what, what do I most enjoy? Um, the difficulty is getting these guys to understand, you know, because it's not the norm. The norm is to go lift more and, and go practice more, go run more, instead of trying to figure out a, a simpler way of their task. Now, uh, I, I, enjoy, um, I, I enjoy baseball a lot because I've done it for so many years. But honestly, I can wake up and do it tomorrow and the next day. So I enjoy the newer uh, challenges. I enjoy the concussions. I enjoy the, uh, the different sports I don't spend as much time on and trying to figure out, you know, the, the, the unique challenges that they have and how we can give them a little bit of an edge to make their game not easier, but allow them to perform at a higher level. Well, Ryan, uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Ryan Harrison founder of Slow the Game Down, has over 20 years' experience working with professional athletes, Major League Baseball, NCAA, etc. Um, you can visit his website, www.slowthegamedown.com. So, Ryan, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, always enjoy the discussion. Thank you. So this has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. So on behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, my co-host Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, and some combination of the three of us and our main host, Cade Massey, here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. Of course, thanks to all of our fans and listeners here on our Wharton Moneyball Zoom edition podcast. Uh, we're here every week between now and next week. Enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. Wharton Moneyball.